We talk PT, drink beer, and record it. This is the PT Pinecast. Oh, yeah, you did. You told me exactly what to say, and I said it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I said it, and as a, as a new president, I'd just been elected APTA president, and I said this thing, and, and, and Jimmy had it in a recording, and then on the way home from work that day, I was reflecting. I was like, oh, this, could not, this is not good. It does not need to be repeated. I called Jimmy. I said, you know, that thing you had me record, I don't think it's good. Can, can we just not air that? <laughs> and he was like, oh, but it's perfect. I said, no, it's actually not good for the president of APTA to be saying this on a podcast. And Follow us online, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at PT Pinecast. Hey, before we get started, wanted to say thanks to a couple sponsors that keep the show on the air. Physical Therapy and Balance Centers. They were created by PTs, especially for PTs in private practice. On average, a private practice who joins the physical network grows more than 40%. So if you're ready to discover how the largest network of PT private practice owners are growing and adapting to industry changes, visit physicalfranchise.com. That's F-Y-Z-I-C-A-L franchise.com. And our friends from MW Therapy, they want to know, hey, have your EMR costs grown out of control? Has your current EMR hit a wall? Or maybe it was invented in 2007 when smartphones weren't even a thing. There's a time for something better at times now. MW Therapy. Take a demo now at mwtherapy.com. That's mwtherapy.com where switching over your EMR is easy. And our friends at CBDRX for you, your CBD store, get the ABCs of CBD at CBDRX4U.com. That's CBDRX, the number four, the letter U, dot com. This is the PT Pinecast. So usually I do a big fancy radio introduction. I tell the audience, I go, hey, this person, and I give them kind of like a highlight reel of their resume, and then I say, and welcome our next guest, and then I say their name. Um, I want to do something different. I wanted you to introduce yourselves, but not yourself. I want to, Connie, could you introduce Sharon? Sharon, could you introduce Connie? I didn't prepare you for this. That's all right. On purpose. So, Connie, how would you introduce the, uh, the lady sitting to, directly to your radio left? Well, that's Dr. Sharon Dunn, but we call her the skipper <laughs> because she's had a few boating incidents that she, she didn't do well in. I know boats. She, uh, she is um, the epitome of humility. She's a scholar. She's from the South. And when we served on the board together, she would come to me and say, Hauser, just because we talk funny, they don't think we know anything. <laughs> <laughs> so let's just keep that up. And they'll never know where we're coming from. And it worked every time. It's a sucker punch. It is. It's a sucker punch. It is. All right. So that's that's who Connie's introducing, Dr. Sharon Dunn. And uh, Sharon, who's uh, who's sitting to your radio right? My radio right is probably the strongest woman I know and an incredible mentor and leader. Her name is Connie Hauser. She is a self-made woman who appreciates everything she has in life. She gives more than she takes. She loves people. Uh, but she's no nonsense. She doesn't put up with BS. <laughs> <laughs> but it's not necessarily BS uh, 
that she doesn't put up with just for the sake of it. It's when people are doing the right thing, she's happy about it. When people are taking advantage of a situation, she's unhappy about it. And so she always wants to preserve and promote what's right uh, for the profession, for organizations. She's a steel magnolia. Uh, she, uh, when I came onto the board, she took me under her wing as a, as a, as a mentor. Um, and I learned a lot from her. I learned not to roll my eyes in a meeting. <laughs> I learned to treat everybody with respect because if you want to be treated that way, you got to treat others that way. Yeah. And, uh, just great friend. I learned from um, uh, Dave Grohl. Dave Grohl is the lead singer of Foo Fighters. He used to be in a band called Nirvana, too. He said, you don't have interviews. You have conversations. That's why I was so excited for this, because I've known both of you. Sharon, I met you when I was a student, because there's not a student that didn't meet you during your <laughs> tenure as president. Um, and then, Connie, I just met you a couple, you know, three, four years ago, right? actually. It feels the, like yeah, a blink. Yeah, with the Centennial. With the Centennial Steering Committee. So I've known you in different capacities. And uh, Dave Grohl said conversations are kind of like onions like you're just going to start peeling one way and you have no idea where, to, where it's going to go there's nothing in the middle of an onion so the process of peeling the onion is the is the thing the interview the conversation yeah. is the thing um so i just found an edge to peel skipper like what like yeah. i didn't i didn't know we were going in this direction but i can't not peel that part of the onion what 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 is that mm-hmm. boating incidents i don't know what that means I grew Go up on a lake. Um, my family went camping every every summer, and I had outboard boats all my life in Louisiana, where lakes stay the same level most of the time. <laughs> Connie and her husband, Pat, introduced me to coastal boating. but I, I, I know boats, but I don't know shit about tides. Tides, they come <laughs> in and go out. That's what they told me. You know boats, but you don't know shit about tides. <laughs> so you can tell the rest of the story. Yeah, and that's the truth. And we uh, actually had some pretty strong-willed uh, females with us on that boating trip. And Sharon agreed to be the skipper and drive it because she knew boats. And <laughs> the rest of us going like, that. okay, that sounds good. And uh, we took off one afternoon off Bohickett Marina down in South Carolina with uh, Sharon, myself, Amy Klein, Melanie Gillar, Margaret Almeida, and my husband, Pat. He was the only man on board. But Sharon was in charge. Because mm-hmm. I know boats. Because you know boats. Yeah, so we, we cruised out the river, and they had told us ahead of time, don't go past these markers. And we go out the river to, toward the ocean, and we see this really cool little island thing. And Sharon and all of us were going like, Let's go over to that island and we'll get our packed lunch. And Pat, my husband, was saying, there's there's a markers over there. They told us not to go. And Sharon just got, revs it up. And we run right up on the sand. I said, oh, Pat, we can trim the motor up. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. Did, ne- you, ever, did you ever get off say, the island again? No. <laughs> Needless to say. We, uh, we were chauffeured off the island. Yes, exactly. By the boat rental company. And they had to go back. 12 hours later to Ooh. retrieve their boat. Why 12 hours, Sharon? The tide came back That's in. That's how tides yeah, work. See, yeah, she knows. Now. You knew tides. You know tides. Yeah. I do now. Um, so a little bit of backstory. So, and, and Sharon, I don't want to just assume. I think people 
I mean, obviously recognize you as the the, the just outgoing uh, APTA president. Um, but but what's your what's your your backstory? Educator, been involved with the board and the association for a long time. But I've known you for a long time, and I want to make sure I don't miss some part of 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 your history before now. Probably the backstory when I got engaged in in APTA was when I was a student. I went to the first Louisiana Physical Therapy Association meeting, and this was. This was mid to late 80s, and back then uh, we were we were challenged by physician-owned physical therapy practices, and I went into a member-only meeting, and a, a, a person who was, was in one of those physician-owned practices was recording the proceedings of the meeting, and his, and his recorder clicked off in his pocket. And everybody oh, he was, in, he, he was hiddenly. He, he was, was hidden. Oh, got it, got it, got it. He got was... It. He was on the download recording what our strategies were and when his recorder went off three gentlemen physically removed him from the meeting and came back with the recording and we never saw the guy again <laughs> so i was like oh, this is these people really care about the professional physical therapy and i'm hooked for life so as a student i, I realized there was a lot of passion and expectation of what the organization did for the profession and that was my hook. Well, if there's someone who is cares enough to strap a recorder in their pocket yeah. or whatever to see your strategies, like that's when you know you're on to something. Yeah, like exactly. they're scared now, guys. Like let's go. Let's double yeah. down. So you were hooked in terms of the association and advocacy, um, also an educator. Mm-hmm. I, I fell into education. I didn't I didn't set out to be an educator. I I wanted to be a great orthopedic clinician. And I was practicing in an outpatient orthopedic clinic in in my hometown where my alma mater was. And the program chair at the time, who ended up being a great mentor of mine, invited me to come back and adjunct teach. And uh, I I taught from 5 p. to 8 p.m. on Tuesdays and Thursdays. The students loved me, right? Keeping them three hours twice a week after. To 8 p.m.? 8 (laughs) p.m. And it was grueling for me. It was miserable for them. And I was hooked. <laughs> I, was, uh, I cried the whole first year because I, I didn't feel like I was competent, capable, giving them what they needed. Um, but then I came back to it, refined, and came back into a, a position with the school and didn't have to teach from 5 to 8 at that point. And students started liking me better because (laughs) you weren't encroaching on happy hour i was not encroaching on happy hour or their personal lives so that's how it happened it was it was organic for me and the more i taught the more i enjoyed teaching the more i enjoyed mentoring and the more i saw you touch the future and and your impact is exponential when you when you touch the future of the profession that way yeah and then eventually, both of you went into larger leadership positions, uh, you know, on, on, a, on a bigger scale within APTA, and um, you just ended. Was it eight years? Was six. that six years? Six yeah. year term as APTA president? Two, two three year terms, and then you're termed out. You can serve two consecutive three year terms. And I put the request in for an interview with Sharon because normally it has to go through the proper channels, APTA, PR. And I said to you a couple months ago, hey, I'd like to request an interview. And you, Jimmy, you know you got to go through these people. It's like, no, no, I want to do it after January 1. And you were like, I see which way you're going here. <laughs> Unscripted Are, and unplugged. Well, yeah. Where I mean, you, you know, 
So Connie, let's talk about let's talk about your backstory. So I want to make sure the okay. audience has enough of a scope to know where we're going to go differently. So where where does your PT journey start? Um, actually, it started in my undergraduate years. I was in uh, teaching at East Ten- East Tennessee State University, and um, I graduated with a with an education degree, and I taught fourth grade for a short period of time. Until I realized I couldn't even do their math problems. <laughs> so uh, I went to one of the athletic trainers, the head athletic trainer there, and asked him. I said, Jerry, you know, I really want to do something with movement. And with, he said, I said, I think I might go to one of those restorative aid classes. And he said, no, nope, you're going to PT school. And I said, I'm not sure what that is. Mm-hmm. So it just happened to be a Christmas break. My husband from Kentucky, and we drove to the University of Kentucky over Christmas break, and I did it unannounced, <laughs> and everybody was gone except the chair of the department. And um, I walked in, and I said, could I speak to someone about your physical therapy program? And he said, he was the only one there. And he said, well, we're shut down. Everybody's gone for Christmas, and um, come on in. I'll talk to you. And so uh, I spoke to him and then went through the interview process a few weeks later. Anyway, by the last draw, someone dropped out of the class, and he called me because I didn't get in. And he called and said, okay, Connie, somebody just dropped out. You didn't make the cut, but I'm going to take a chance. And he he mentored me for many years, Dick McDougall, uh, and then I started just loving orthopedics. You know, it was just uh, something I'd love to be able to put my hands on a patient's joint and actually know what you're feeling when you're moving it. And so uh, right after graduation, I started working in a small hospital. And at that time, there were no outpatients. Right. Believe it or not, but outpatients in a hospital, were, they just low priority. So uh, I started seeing outpatients from an orthopedist and a plastic surgeon after work because I'd have I was punching a time clock go punch your time clock go back to the gym and treat their patients right and finally both of them came together I actually have to say these great docs talked me into going to private practice Mm. they're going Connie what are you doing I mean it's eight o'clock why don't you do this on your own? I'm going, oh, I don't know how to do that. But mm. anyway, they mentored me and got me started. And um, we, I went from there into a small practice in eastern Kentucky. And Went into one or started one? Started one in a little little 80-bed hospital. I had 200 square feet, which is about like two bedrooms. <laughs> and we had mats on the floor because we didn't have room. Anyway... Um, over those years, I, I was always a, a Kentucky chapter member, and I started kind of asking for roles to take over, you know, a committee or something. And um, I went to Reno for a private practice meeting, and a very dear friend of mine who was in graduate school at UK, Jim Gould from uh, Kentucky, and then... Uh, uh, Wisconsin, and I went to Jim. He was on the board of PPS, and I said, can I get involved in this? He said, okay, I'll call you. 
A week later, he calls, and he says, you're on Government Affairs Committee. <laughs> going, holy shit. And then you said, is there any fourth-grade math <laughs> yeah, on that exactly. committee? <laughs> no, I'm in. Exactly. So that's how it kind of all started, just great people saying, you know, I want you to be involved in this. And Yeah, but you, sh- you had to show up first. Yeah. You showed up over Christmas break when it was closed, yeah. and you showed up, and then you showed up, yeah. and you showed up, and you showed up. So I mean, from there, PT Pros went from to what? From what to what? Well, they went from uh, two employees to 110, and one little site and a couple of nursing home contracts to 13 sites all over the state of Kentucky and some odds and ends contracts and things. But uh, we've got a great practice, great group of people, leadership team that, you know, I don't have to do anything. <laughs> you know, so, I, I, I lean on them. They just say, don't worry, we got it covered. <laughs> so you very much had, that's your business acumen. Like you went in the side door in terms of like, hey, mm-hmm. education and orthopedics. And then business. Yeah. Sharon went into physical therapy, advocacy, the, the, the associations, education. So I like right. how what you have in common, I like similarities and differences. So we're going to go there. Similarities, the association membership. Yeah. Differences, education, and business. But both of those, you are women in leadership. You're women in a leadership role. How is that? How was that and how is that? Because you're both very much... Do, still still doing those or just, just wrapping up a six-year term to do those. And there's probably a lot of females out there who are probably going to run into some barriers mm-hmm. that you probably helped break down already. And there's still barriers to break yeah. down. So I almost wanted the topic to be women in leadership. I think the professional organization, because it was founded by women, has been very kind to women in, in leadership in the American Physical Therapy Association. I don't think we find that outside of the APTA as much as we find it inside the APTA. I agree. But within the APTA, we found mentors and, and coaches and, and life uh, advice about how to just continue to show up, how to, how to do the right thing even when it's hard, and then supporting each other when you, when you meet a, a crisis outside of the APTA and how to navigate those challenges because – there, there are barriers to women in leadership, especially in the South, I, I, I would say, because we're supposed to be, just be nice. <laughs> <laughs> just be nice and, and don't make too much trouble because it's not ladylike to make trouble. Yeah. And so even when you're making good trouble, it's a threat to the, the power structure of, of uh of leadership and, and administration in no matter the field, whether it's higher education or business or, or legislative, legislative um, policy making. Uh, so it's, it's challenging to navigate, but it's not impossible when you have amazing mentors and friends through the association to guide you for through sure. those tough times. Yeah, for sure. Well, you know, um, in 1974, when I graduated from PT school, you can only imagine the barriers. <laughs> and when I decided to go into private practice, I didn't have the funds or the the backing, equity backing, to even do it. Um, and I went from bank to bank. I went to, uh, I think, six or eight banks 
to try to get a loan for $5,000 to wow. start this practice. I was turned down at every one of them. And even one said, you really need to bring your husband when you come here. <laughs> now, I like my husband a lot, but he didn't need to be there with me. And so, this was this was in the seventies. Yes, this was not that long ago. Well, I mean, that's yeah. I mean, well, it depends, but but it was very commonplace, uh, especially like Sharon said in the South, and then I went into a real rural area, Kentucky. Another step back, you were pregnant. Yeah, I was pregnant with my second son. Because you didn't, you didn't go to those banks alone, though. You didn't bring your husband, but you did bring someone. I brought my uh, three-year-old and my second son, who was getting ready to be born. They went <laughs> with me. And because uh, we didn't have a babysitter. My husband was in law school, and, he, you know, he couldn't get out for me to make it. So um, I met one banker who said... Tell me how you're going to make this work. We don't like to make loans like that for $5,000. And my three-year-old said, please loan that money to my mommy. She's a good, silky therapist. (laughs) True story. And he closed it. And he closed the deal. He's still closing deals. And the guy says, yeah, and the guy says, you got it. We'll set you up and, you know, it was amazing because $5,000 was a lot of money then. I mean, a lot. And uh, we got the clinic set up, uh, uh, a person to help me there from the local town that worked with me as a tech. And uh, I was forever grateful to him. He was a, a large banker. And um, I ended up treating him down the road years later. Had two total knees. He was a catcher. And... Uh, professional baseball so his knees were gone ended up working with him working with his wife who had rheumatoid arthritis and treated her for years and it was just somebody was willing to take a chance they were willing to take a chance and i mean that's what you always got to think you know our our motto in our uh, business meetings are we really believe under that pile of shit there's a pony. <laughs> so optimism. You know, you've got to be optimistic and believe in yourself and believe in your team. And also be willing to hand off things and not mingle in them. You know, when projects go out to somebody, I'm off hands. You know, you bring it back, and then we'll see what happens here. But well, that feels like imp- empowering people to to take that step yes. and not being the person who has to do everything exactly. because Connie needs to be doing Connie things. If Connie's doing everything, then wh- what am I here for? Right? So you want to make sure Connie's doing Connie things. Jimmy's doing Jimmy things and Sharon's doing Sharon things. Yeah. I've we'll always say that one of the John Maxwell leadership books, he always said, uh, the sign of a good leader is when the team steps back and said, we did it ourselves. Yeah. And I mean, I've always believed in that. I mean, you had a, team for the last six yeah. years yeah. That, and that couldn't have been easy because also with 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 your structure and i'm sure with business as well there's turnover there's a different type of person with a different lived experience coming in at all times and of course the environment is always changing like the last two plus years um what are you going to think fondly of looking back at your time on the board in terms of the people that you were with 
that I learned so much from them. Um, and p- part of what our board mantra was was to create an environment that's safe that everybody can participate fully in. So our we said, say the thing, even when it's hard, even when there's conflict or confrontation, if it's not out on the table, then it's not out on the table, and that creates cracks and festers and challenges. So we learned from each other how to trust each other with that over time. And when I stepped back and shut up and other people said the thing, I learned a ton. I learned a lot from Connie about passion and how important it is to be passionate, but also how to keep your powder dry. Yeah. So Charles Magistro was a mentor to both of us, and that's what he taught me. He taught me through Connie is not to let your passion get in the way of your purpose, kind of slow your roll a little bit. Mm-hmm. You're a passionate person, but that can interfere with the ultimate outcome. And then I uh, learned a lot from Lisa Saladin about being strategic, uh, f- you know, put put steps in place for success. Uh, you know, it, It's not ready, fire, aim. It's uh, ready, aim, fire. So I had amazing group of board colleagues that I served with that I learned so much from. People can fall into that trap, myself very much included, right? You get put in charge, and now I've got to be, but I am, yeah. I am now the leader, and everyone listen to me. When I was reminded by a, a former boss myself with great lessons, like, you were put there for a reason. Don't change now. Like, okay. remember who brought you to the dance. Your person, whatever you, your skill set was, you were hired to do that, but I see this, and one of the reasons I started a podcast was I watched people walk on stages at CSMs and become presenters. And that's my communication lens and saying, well, if I get you in the, in the happy hour, that's the version of you I want to talk to. Yeah. But I'm sure it can come up in business and education and leadership where it's probably from a place of insecurity where they're like, I need to be the boss, and, I, and this is my version of the boss. When both of you were saying it really is get the most out of your team allow them like a good leader should be more of the coxswain right and less of the rower yes yeah you mentioned um uh uh, a name there for a second i i'll go backwards before we go forward Uh, i volunteered for the foundation for physical therapy gala in boston and i was giving away uh, an award Part of the, the night's programming was I was going to give away an award. And looking back on the staff, I should have said, it'd be great if you write everything down phonetically for me. But I was just trying to be the master of ceremony. I can handle it. I can handle it. And in a room of, I don't know, three, 400 people, I mispronounced Charles Magistro's oh, name. No. Had, I mean, I butchered it. It wasn't even close. Because I'm sitting there shaking and sweating in a room full of PTs. And I think I graduated like a year ago before that. But the coolest part was how many people snapped to attention to correct me not to correct me because oh I, I can this guy's wrong what it said to me at the end of the night after i after i got the knot out of my stomach uh. that i just stepped in something there was he must have mattered if enough people exactly cared to make sure his name was pronounced properly at that yes. event so uh connie you just won an award yesterday yeah. from the foundation named Pretty after awesome. charles magistro um Let's not talk about the award. Let's talk about the man. Yeah. So you told a little bit of a story, and I'm sure you got a bucket full of them. But if, if you wanted to have someone who, like me, before that foundation gala, I'd never heard of who this person. Yeah. What, would you, what would you two want people to know about him, and what about him is still resonating even after, even after he's no longer with us? His wisdom. 
I mean, he was just incredibly wise. And he knew people's needs. And his wife, Noel, I always, I can't not talk about Charles without talking about her because she was like the point guard of the whole Magistro family. She was a Stephon Curry, you know? <laughs> and she was about 90 pounds, 5 feet tall. And uh, Sharon and I actually got to spend a weekend with them. They invited us out to their house. And, and at this point, he was in what capacity? Where, who, like, For people who don't know, what, what did he do? Not who was he. That's a deeper question. What right. did he do, just for perspective? Well, he actually started the private practice section along with Bob Dykus and some, some other PTs during that time because he believed we could be independent providers that we could own our own practice, which he started. Um, He managed a huge hospital in Claremont, California, that still has lots of pieces of equipment that he designed so they could be more efficient. And then through the years, I mean, he grew. He was APTA president. He, um, He was on the foundation board of trustees. He and he and Noel contributed a lot of money toward research because as Charles and Sharon and I used to talk about, if we don't have research to back up our outcomes, we can't sell it to companies. And we have to have it. Where's that Where's that data? Yeah. I mean, incredible. So while he was treasurer and president of APTA, um, Congress inserted physical therapist in the Social Security Act, which means we're, we're billable as a profession. Without Charles' wisdom, foresight, and leadership, we, we would be a cost center mm-hmm. and not have this entrepreneurial spirit about the profession right. that, that evolved out of his leadership. But he also loved the profession so, uh, and he had great hope for our potential as a profession to be uh, change agents and, and agents of, of uh, difference for individuals and society. He he saw the big picture and he and he was he had such a sense of urgency when we went out to his house about what he thought the profession needed to do today. So so it would be relevant in twenty years. He still was such a visionary, and his sense of urgency, if I remember that that visit correctly, was related to clinical education. So here's this brilliant man, private practitioner, businessman, banker, who who was concerned about the quality of clinical educations in our academic programs. And he said to me, our profession is so technically skilled, but also intellectually challenging. He was worried about the clin- clinical education losing sight of the technical skill of the profession. Our profession is relationally based on relationships of every physical therapist with every patient. And he was worried we were going to lose that mm. unless we continue to focus on high-quality, high-touch physical therapy. And uh, so I, I just remember his love for the profession. And, and he put his money where his mouth is. Sure. Which is why there's an award named after him. Right. Which congratulations again, uh, Connie, oh, you picked up you. last night at the at the event. So you told a little bit of the story. So he obviously saw some of that in you. He, 
because he was in his 80s when this story happened, correct? Exactly. That you told me last night. And he invited you to his house because I guess he wanted to impart. He was like, you're going to come work here. I'm going to teach you something for this weekend. Right. And he, want, he, knew, he saw something in both of you to carry that on. So what happened that weekend? Well, I know when we got no, I was driving. Yeah, you said you could tell <laughs> that part. Point, no, yeah. no, no, Charles had gotten to a position where he was not driving anymore, but Noel was still incredibly healthy. But she had one speed, and when they picked us up from the airport, that speed was accelerate. <laughs> <laughs> I think we were going 100 and something. We were, and we both flew back in the seat, and jeez, uh, and we're like, yeah. "Oh God, are we going to live through this weekend?" <laughs> but she, she was the 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 she was the amazing support, oh. the woman behind the man that was so critical to his success and. His ability to serve the profession. So I, I remember her being present, but not intrusive in the conversations. But she also guided some of the conversation because he wanted us. She wanted us to get the most out of out of that visit because she knew how important it was for Charles. Um, they had a big poodle named Capo yeah. who who ran the house and had to check us out to make sure that we were okay. And then Capo ended up sleeping Sleep in the room us, where, yeah. we, where, where they had us stay. Um, and I, I, when Charles had something very important to say, he, he didn't yell. Uh, you know, the saying that the person with the most power is not the one yelling. Mm-hmm. When he really wanted you to hear what he was saying, he talked even softer. So that you had to lean in to hear what he had to say. And when Charles spoke, he did it quietly, softly, and everyone leaned in. Just amazing human being. Just his steely just, blue eyes. Yeah. He'd look you right in the eye. And you'd lean in. <laughs> he would tell you what you needed to know. So what was covered that weekend? I heard he read two newspapers yeah. in his 80s before you guys had even... Yeah, I mean, he made made sure we knew the schedule as planned for that next morning. I'll see you girls at 5 a.m. in the kitchen. And Sharon and I are going, oh, God, what's he going to do? And at 5 a.m., we trounced down to their kitchen, this beautiful home that they had just built in their mid-'80s. And uh, there was Charles reading newspapers. I read two to three newspapers cover to cover every morning. And and he said, okay, you, you you guys get your coffee and then come back over here and I'll finish my papers, which we sat and waited, and which he did. And then he started not necessarily quizzing us, but wanting to know how we felt about the future of the profession. He knew Sharon was an educator. He knew I was a clinician. Um, he wa- He wanted us to to know that he had grave concerns for the future of our profession in the sense that we may be steering away from things that we don't need to steer away from. Like Sharon said, the clinical education piece. Uh, I mean, he just, we sat and listened. And the the importance of the patient-physical therapist relationship, don't ever let that go. Right. Um, he, He was very concerned about quality research to to lend credibility to our practice. He said, we can, we can tell stories only for so much longer to be able to get paid justly for our service. We need to have quality data to back up who we are and what we do. He was very concerned about that. 
And now we have opportunity to use big data to justify who we are. And we have incredible research to justify what we do because of the seeds that Charles Magistro planted. What would he lean in and say now? If he were around now, what are the things he would say that we should be paying attention to next? Because the stuff we're living in right now sounds like he had he ready, aim, fire. Like he, he had it. He said it's going to take a while. It's going to take people time. What would he be saying now? What are some of the things that you think he'd be making sure that he leaned in, talked so uh, softly to make sure you heard? I think he would lean in and say, don't let go of what got you here as a profession. And that's what you do with every patient, not necessarily with your hands, but with your mind. I think he would say, don't get so caught up in the payment methodology. Make sure what you do is valuable enough to be paid for. And if you're running around chasing the payment method, that's the wrong direction to go. Chase the value and quality that you deliver, Mm -hmm. and the payment will come. I think that's what he would say. I think so, too, and I I think he would also say, um, I'm proud of this profession. I've loved this profession for a long, long time, and that I really felt like Charles was, um, he was just proud of, of what people were trying to do and how things were going alongside his fears of breaking off the wrong direction at the turn, uh, I believe he would be really happy. But I also think he would still challenge us. Mm-hmm. Honey, we got to do things better. Mm-hmm. we got to keep those patient relationships. You know, you put that patient first before anything else. Because he was involved in patient care directly for many, many years in California. I mean, he was a caregiver. I remember Noel telling me when we got to their house, they have large portraits of all their children. And they had five children. And um, I asked Noel, I said, Noel, how how did you manage this big family with Charles being so busy? She said, Charles never came home before really late every night because he's working. And he worked and built that practice. And I took care of the children pretty much. And she said, you know, it was hard for Charles because he knew he was missing things. Mm-hmm. But um, that focus of his was, was right on target. I mean, and I, like I said, Noel, I think, would she always, like Sharon said, she could, she could make the calls when the times got tough. And in her own gentle, quiet way. And it, I was just always so impressed with with her, too. And she would write these um, handwritten notes. Mm-hmm. I've got a stack of handwritten notes that Noel wrote to me from she and Charles over the last several years. And every note was just incredible. It was just a pouring out of her love and Charles's love for our family. And uh, I'll, I'll treasure those forever. She took the time to do those kinds of things. They saw meaning in them. They saw, yes. Yeah. Um, t- let's look to the future. Let's do profession and personal. 
I mean, I saw you in the hallway the other day, Sharon. I said, how are you feeling? I think your word was like light or like <laughs> I feel like I, you know, uh, any gravity shoes on because your life for six years was down to the minute and you had to go and have fun meetings. And I'm going to guess not so fun meetings where you had to take a pounding or explain or deliver bad news or whatever and as, as a leader has to. So profession-wise and personally, what's in the next, you know, five to six years for both of you guys? Well, I would say um, professionally, um, we have a huge, not a huge, but a great team that runs our company, and I'd like to see that continue. Um, I believe advocacy is so important, especially for, um, like we talked about earlier, for for payment, for stability. Um, I mean, we've got to stay involved. And I love that involvement. You know, personally, I'm not ready to go home and do nothing. <laughs> I mean, I really love the profession, and mm-hmm. I try to try to relay that to students that we have coming through on clinicals. And I mean, that's that's kind of where I am right now. Good. I'm still kind of treading water a little bit, but I'm able to step back from uh, our practice that's been there like 45 years. And wow. Um, and I don't, I don't have to make all the decisions. You're and letting I'm people fine. do that, right? Put the oh, right people I, in the right position. Let them, let yeah, them play let the position. Do it. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So what's next? This is the big question. I like, know. For, for me professionally, it's, it's re-engaging in a, in a, in a very intense level in my day job. I, it's, it's not that I have uh, abandoned my day job, but now I have uh, extra time to focus on what's next at LSU for the School of Allied Health Professions, and we've got eight academic programs, PT being one of them. We also have a PhD in Rehabilitation Sciences. So I think what's next for our school is a, a commitment to scholarship and doing the things that that Charles thought was so important to make sure that we have the scientific underpinning of, of who we are as a profession, innovation, creativity, and creating an environment there in the school where our faculty can be successful in integrated learning and scholarship and um, succession planning there, um, but also succession planning within the association. I, I see the future, and it is incredibly bright. The future is sitting in, in front of me right now. And I had the privilege to serve with so many early career physical therapists and physical therapist assistants through the association that I want to I want to sponsor people to success in the association and in leadership of the association. I don't know what that looks like yet, um, but I know what the future looks like when the right people are engaged in driving the association forward. So I'd like to help create opportunities for people who want to engage at a high level. Personally, I'm going to chill. <laughs> I'm gonna, I got a, I got a, I got a, uh, a, a week's vacation planned in a couple of weeks just to check out and go off the grid. Yeah. Will you uh, be on a boat uh, in a body of water with tides? I will. All right. Because I know tides. You know now. not. Now you know tides. Uh, if it's warm enough, but mm. if it's not, I'll be sitting on a couch reading a book or playing golf. Um, I'm, I'm also helping my mom 
get reestablished after some life transitions. It, you know, you turn 80 and stuff happens. Mm-hmm. And uh, she's settling in and moving from Phoenix back close to home. So it's that's been in, very entertaining. Um, <laughs> but also, um, you know, the circle of life is important. And the people who invested in you and raised you deserve the best from you on the back side of it so doing that too love on it the life side. is there anything i didn't bring up this has actually become one of my favorite interview yeah. or conversation questions i said not interview questions because i would never want to you know put the put the headphones down or, or, or turn off a recorder if there was like you know i wish we talked about because as soon as i hit stop yeah. that's when you'll be like you know we should have talked about 51 uh, percent <laughs> all right see this is why i asked what is 51 percent you have to tell that one, Sharon. <laughs> at, at one point, I thought I, would, I wanted to, to dabble in private practice after Connie and I knew each other, and I had a, an idea for a, a venture. And I, I, I went up to, to Barberville, Kentucky, and Connie was going to mentor us in a business, and, and we wanted to learn all she knew about about business and she said, okay, let's go into a joint venture, a partnership. She said, but I'll have 51% of the ownership. I was like, Connie, we're, we'll be down there doing the sweat equity. And, it, I mean, we could pay you 25% of the, of the business, but not 51%. And she stood up. She said, I don't even know why we're having this meeting. And she walked out. But then, you know, the backside of that story is there's a reason for that. When you figured it out and you know what works, then you want to make sure you've got the the majority ownership so you can make sure what works works. Right. And I learned so much from Connie during that time and uh she taught me a lot about <laughs> about business and life and leadership and so And you knew you knew what you knew. That's why I said 51 yeah. or 51 or nothing, 51 or zero. Yeah. She knew what she knew, and she walked out and was was the best decision she ever made. And it taught me a lot. Uh, we're to throw it back to, like, one of our first episodes. You were nice enough to answer a cold email from a PT student who had just started this thing in 2015. Was, what, the, what is a podcast? I don't know what the heck this is. My pa- Nobody knew what the heck it was in 2015. Now everybody's got six podcasts. But I just cold emailed you as a student and said, hey, I've got this radio this podcast thing. Would you come on? And I don't know. It was 20 minutes later. Said, sure. And I was like, oh, that was, woo, we're on a roll here. <laughs> Great conversation. Um, I enjoyed it. Um, but at the end of the conversation, I think, we had, I think we had stopped recording for the episode, but I kept the reels going. And uh, I asked you to record an ID. And an ID, you've heard them before. Hey, this is, uh, this is Dave Grohl from the Foo Fighters, and you're listening to Z27. So that's an ID, so you can play it other places. I was like, oh, I'll get her to say this, and I'll put it all over the place. And everybody say, well, Sharon likes it, then uh, you know, I should listen to it. And I don't, I don't remember how it happened. I, I thought I just said, just say something, whatever. But maybe I did give you direction. Oh, yeah, you did. You told me exactly what to say, and I said it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I said it, and as a, as a new president, I'd just been elected APTA president, and I said this thing, and, and, and Jimmy had it in a recording, and then on the way home from work that day, I was reflecting. I was like, oh, this, could, this is not good, and it does not need to be repeated on the air. So I, I called Jimmy. 
called you. On the phone. On the phone, on my way home from work. I said, you know, that thing you had me record, I don't think it's good. Can can we just not air that? Could that, could that go away? And, and he was like, oh, but it's perfect. I said, no, it's actually not good <laughs> for the president of APTA be saying this on a podcast. <laughs> and when Jimmy didn't run it, and I think he destroyed I do, it. Yeah, I would yeah. love to have the audio, but I, I was like, here's the problem. If it exists, what do they say? Uh, you know, Two people can t- keep a secret if one of them's dead. Yeah, exactly. So I was like, if this exists, who knows how it gets out. But, yeah. And so we won't even say what it was because I think that, that, that strengthens the mystery. Um, it wasn't anything bad. I think we just said it. I mean, I think I was just I was just off of the cuffing. No, you were a student. You didn't. I understand. didn't know. You didn't understand. <laughs> you yeah. were a broadcast journalist, though, and you knew you knew this would catch. Listen, if you put a microphone <laughs> in someone in front of someone, they say, "What's the if you hand someone enough rope, they'll hang themselves with it. If you yeah, hand yeah. them enough microphone cord, yeah. but that wasn't my intention. But I did. I I thought about it for a long time. I was like, "Oh yeah, I did that. I can't believe that." Well, and that you honored my request. I knew you were a good guy. I was yeah. like, "Okay, this is a great human being uh, and trustworthy." And that's rare these days it is but you're amazing so thank you well i appreciate it this is the the, i had no idea where the onion was gonna go i kind of knew what it would feel like because i know both of you and i wanted other people to know a little bit of of these moments and stories and who better to tell them than you than yourself so i appreciate this time here at csm i know it's very busy not for you i mean what are you even doing here sharon do you even have any responsibilities just floating around hanging out drinking coffee (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, cheers to both of you, and uh, and and uh, here's to more of those stories. Thanks. That's Thank all we you, got. Jimmy. Did a great job, Jimmy. Thank you. Done. Like what you hear? Tell a friend or leave a review on iTunes or Google Play. The show today is brought to you by the Brooks Institute of Higher Learning, an innovator in providing advanced post-professional education. The Brooks IHL offers seven on-site PT residencies, including orthopedics, women's health, geriatrics, pediatrics, sports, and neurology, as well as a neurologic OT fellowship, a competitive OMPT fellowship, and a speech therapy clinical fellowship. Therapists that complete a residency or fellowship through the Brooks IHL will markedly advance their knowledge and skills in a specialty area of practice. Learn more about how a residency or fellowship can help you advance your professional development at brooksihl.org. Our home on the internet. PTPintCast.com. Created by Build PT. Build PT provides marketing services specifically for private practice PTs. From website development and hosting. Providing content marketing solutions for PT clinics across the country. See what Build PT can do for you today at BuildPT.com. The PT Pinecast is a product of PT Pinecast LLC. It is hosted and produced by PT Pinecast CEO Jim McKay and CBO Sky Donovan from Marymount University. We talk PT, drink beer, and record it. This has been another pour from the PT Pinecast. The PT Pinecast is intended for educational purposes only. No clinical decision making should be based solely on one source. While care is taken to ensure accuracy, factual errors can be present. More on the show at ptpinecast.com.